0: Well, we're going to uh, close out our time here with, uh, uh, I've asked Keith to come share uh, for a second time on on Romans 10, and then we'll close out with, with a time of worship. So Keith, come on. All right. Hey, we, uh, we've we been talking about this uh, Romans 10 underpinning of this idea, and so if you have your copy of Scripture, you can turn with me to Romans 10. We're going to dive into the actual text and and look at it and kind of see what's what's going on as we begin to just peer into it and begin to look. And so um, I just want to start off, um, I, I love doing this thing when we just dive in and begin to say, what does this say to us? And so I'm going to put it up here on the screen, and, uh, and so... Let's read it. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in, in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent, as is as it is written, how beautiful are the feet. Of those who bring good news. This is such a essential text for us to be able to understand really what's going on and what's behind our actions as we look at this. Um, Just because I'm a preacher, I got three Ps for you. Um, And so, first of all, what we see in the very beginning is a promise, and then we see a problem, and then we see a people. And so, a promise, a problem, and a people, um, all with Ps for your listening pleasure. So, um, in this, we start off with this idea: everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a promise. That's a sense of being able to understand that this action from us leads to a reaction from God. And ultimately, it's his action that begins this very process anyway. But what we begin to see is there's a sense of a promise that, hey, when we begin to respond to God, there's a response that he has. And for us, here's what I think that we have to understand. We have to believe and continue to understand just how big of a deal this is. Like this needs to be that thing that we are continue like in awe of. That a holy, perfect God begins to say, you will be saved the things that hold us at a dis- at a distance will be reconciled for us to be able to have a relationship together if you will do the action of calling upon the name of the lord and this is such a powerful thing and i and i believe sometimes that how we get into ruts of apathy and ruts of being able to not to be able to use our gifts towards um, connecting people to the kingdom of god is that we just fail to recognize just how big of a deal this is. Um, I, I took my kids to Yellowstone. Um, This last year, we were visiting some of our church plants. We decided we're going to take our kids to Yellowstone. Um, The last time we went to Yellowstone, they were far too young. And so uh, my kids are 13, 11, and 8. We thought, this is going to be perfect. And so I remember the first day we rolled into Yellowstone and we got there. And um, my favorite part of Yellowstone is the animals. Um, And so I remember we, we saw a buffalo and like we pulled over and we tried to creep as close as we could to the buffalo and my kids were just freaking out they've never seen an animal this big and they're this close and there was no fences and um, and that was his first moment and they're like let's take pictures next to the buffalo and all that stuff. And then we saw the next buffalo, and, um, and, and there wasn't like a pull over the you know car moment. And, uh, and then we saw another buffalo, and over the next couple of days, we saw more and more buffalo. And on the last day, um, they're like reading a book, and there's like buffalo walking right, like literally right next to the car, and they're not even looking up. And there's something that happened, right? From the moment they said, a buffalo, right, to... A buffalo, And I think that there's a significant moment for us that oftentimes what is so insignificant for us in the moment of being able to say, man, the the grace of God when we first taste it is so sweet, it's so amazing. And then as we begin to get into it, sometimes it's really hard to have that same kind of connection to it for us to be able to understand that everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved has to continue for us to recognize that as a mind-blowing idea. That that is... That is the essence of our salvation every single day. That's what that's what allows us to have the very life and the and the life of Christ and be able to have an eternity that is sealed with God forever. And this is this is one of those things that we have to understand the promise. And as we begin to understand the promise, it's got to be something that continues to be connected deeply um, every single day. So for us to be able to say, okay, every every day. Everyone who calls upon the name will be saved. And that idea of everyone means that we look out to the world around us and we say there's no one off limits. There's no one too far gone. There's no one that uh, this doesn't attach itself to. And so we begin to say, okay, God, what have you called me to today? So that's the first part, as we begin to see that, as we begin to understand that there's an idea of everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, is that promise. The second thing we begin to see is then this next part, as we begin to see this, and begin to see we have a problem. And, and the problem is this, that there is a promise that is is disconnected, that there's a promise out there, that there's a promise that remains out there for God to do something significant, but then we have this delivery problem. We have this this aspect of this that's not connected. And when we begin to see this delivery problem, here's what Paul's saying. Okay, how can they call upon the one? Okay, this is incredible news, right? But how can they call upon the one if they don't have any belief? And that belief comes from being able to hear it, and they have to be able to hear it from being able, someone being able to say it, and they can't say it in that proximity unless they go and they're a part of that. And so Paul raises this issue, and he's beginning to help us to understand there's an incredible, this this gospel is dis- disconnected from its ability to change people's lives and that's the problem and we begin to see that this is not just a promise but there is a problem and when we begin to recognize the problem it begins to I I hope that one of the things that we tackle is this idea that the problem is a problem for us now oftentimes what happens after we get the promise it can be very easy for us to disregard the problem because we have the promise and we understand, and we're working our lives, and we're helping God to be able to navigate our circumstances, but we can begin to, we can begin to neglect the problem. We can begin to recognize, uh, or, or, or fail to recognize, that God's called us not just to be able to be a part of the promise, but to be connected to the problem. I remember having a moment um, a few years ago. Uh, we were exploring, hey, where, where in the world is God at work? Where do we see movements happening, specifically among college students? And we went to um, we went to a place in East Asia, and we went to a town that had a million college students—not a million humans, a million college students. And I remember being able to navigate the town, and we, my, my wife, and a few others of us, um, began to interact with these with these people. And we went to uh, different places. We asked them to show us around the campus, and we began to have more and more people that we connected to um, as they began to. I mean, we we're we we're Americans, and we just stuck out, and um, and so we kind of collected a crowd, and so we began to talk about um, uh, about all kinds of things. But one of the things we began to talk about was our faith, and. And there was a reality, I remember we're sitting at this, this coffee shop and, um, and I remember talking about, asking them uh, about, uh, about their spirituality and about their belief system and asking them, have you ever heard of, uh, of Jesus? And there, there was about six of them around the table. None of them had ever heard who Jesus was. And, and there's just something that happened to me in that moment where I begin to recognize the weight of lostness, the weight of the fact that there's a promise, but there's a massive problem. And I began to recognize just exactly what that, what, what that meant for, for us and being able to understand, okay, there's, we, we've got to do something. And from that moment, we sent uh, couples over there, and we, we started to start a church over uh, in China because we're just, we were wrecked by this reality that this wasn't just some idea that, that maybe there was someone who hadn't heard and had no knowledge, but they didn't have access. And in this, I began to recognize as I came home, that when I saw what was happening in places where there was no gospel, I began to recognize and that began to heighten, heighten this reality that that's not just an international issue. That's not just something that happens in East Asia. That's something that happens in my neighborhood. That's something that happens in this reality, that there's still a problem. And just because there's access doesn't mean that they have clarity and doesn't mean that, um, that, that God's not calling us to be able to participate in this way. And so there's this reality of us being able to say there's got to be a heart that breaks for lostness. There's, there's got to be something that we begin to say. Man, the problem is a problem, and it's not just an inconvenient Christian. We've got to do something, and there's some should around this. But we begin to say, from the very depth of our soul, Lord, help me to be a part of the solution to this, because this is what it gets to at the very uh, at the very end of this. We begin to see this reality um, that it says, as it is written, "How beautiful are the are the feet of those who bring good news?" And what I love about this is ultimately what Paul clarifies is there's a promise that has to do with fulfilling this problem. And ultimately, this is pointed towards a people that are a part of this. And says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And this is the solution of what it means to be sent, is that there's a group of people and and this is not going to happen without a group of people that understand the promise and understand the problem and begin to believe that they are the people that have, that it's not someone else's thing that it's not someone else's problem that someone else is not going to take care of this that someone else doesn't need to, to to ultimately be connected to this solution but it's us in our and in, in, in who we are as we think about uh, this this idea, one of the things over and over we try to help people to say this is this is the core of what we need to believe that Jesus is precious, that Jesus is precious, that we get up every single morning and we have renewed sense of man the, the gift the gift of Jesus that we have. but the reality is that hell is real, that hell is real, that a choice is demanded. And the church is God's plan A, and there is not a plan B. And to be able to over and over have this just a part of who we are, that, that Jesus is precious, that hell is real, that a choice is demanded, and the church is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. As we begin to think about that last statement, um, this is what, what, what we begin to recognize is that we can't be passive in this. And there's got to be something that begins to fire us up, and there's got to be something that emotionally engages us and helps us to understand w- w- what it means. And And I think that oftentimes this can go from a behavior, but at some point it's got to land at a conviction. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Schindler's List, or it's, it's, a, it's a pretty old movie, but I'll, I'll ruin it for you here. Uh, if you haven't seen it by now, you had your chance. Um, Schindler's List is a story of um, of really what happened in World War II as these uh, Jewish people were put in concentration camps and there was a certain businessman who began to recognize that he could buy them out of slavery and put them into his factories for cheap labor. And this was something that uh, the German government was okay with because it helped the economy of the war. Um, and so they began to allow Oskar Schindler to be able to take and and purchase these Jewish people and to ultimately put them into his factories. Now, at the very beginning, this was an economical decision, but he began to recognize that the other option for them was not another place of employment, but was ultimately, as we know, the concentration camps and the death chambers. And by, by purchasing them, what was happening is effectively he was taking them and saving them. He was bringing them from, from a place of, uh, of, of, of death and ultimately putting them to a place of life. And he begins to see this whole thing. And what began as a, as a context for his own personal gain, we see a scene at the very end. And at the very end, you see this moment where Oscar Schindler is uh, he's found out for what he's actually doing. And he's being taken away. And he begins to recognize after he's used up most of his money to begin to purchase, um, purchase Jewish people and to be able to put them into a place that ultimately saved him, and he began to liquidate more things, and it became more and more significant. In that last moment, he begins to look at the very things that he is, ha- he looks at his watch, he looks at his pen, he looks at his very clothes, and he begins to say, this watch How many Jews could be purchased for this watch, this pen? I could use that. And there's this moment when he begins to recognize just how significant what he can do and how he can begin to utilize what he has to make a bigger difference. And it begins to push, not just as an economic decision, but it begins to say, as I begin to recognize what's going on, it begins to lead me to more and more sacrifice and i thought this is a beautiful illustration of what it looks like when we understand that there is a there's a promise but there's a problem and we get to be a part of the solution i told you i was from vancouver uh washington i'm not from vancouver but i live there and as i lived there i lived in a house And as I did some research on this house that I lived at was just a a very simple thousand square foot two bedroom house. Um, the, the guy I was renting it from said, yeah, it was built in World War II. It was, it was one of the many houses in the Vancouver area that were built for the war effort to be able to house all these people who were in the shipyards. And I began to ask more questions. And um, as I asked more questions, I found out that this was one of the significant places where people um, ultimately built ships for the war effort. And so one day, I, I rode my bike down to, um, to the Columbia River. And as I rode my bike down to the Columbia River, um, I, I began to look at these these shipyards. And if you go down there today, uh, they don't look like much. But there's massive buildings and abandoned um, dry docks. And as you look at these, you think. As I looked, at, and I was like, "What was going on here?" Because they're in disrepair. There's nothing that's uh, connected to the industry at this point. Um, but I began to do uh, research on what these dry docks along the Columbia River in Vancouver, Washington, were used for. And I found out that they were used to build the Liberty ships. And if you know anything about World War II history and the Pacific side, really the, the theater of war was going to be determined not by, um, not by the, the, um, the, con- the strategy of battle in terms of what was happening on the ground or the, or the capacity of the soldiers on either side, it ultimately came down to which side was going to be better supplied. That's the supplies that got to the places whoever was going to win that um, was going to win the war in the Pacific. And so they began to recognize that these Liberty ships not not war uh, ships but simply supply ships were actually the key to the war. Now in 1939 the first Liberty ship was built and it took them 257 days to build a Liberty ship. By the end of the war It wasn't 257 days, but it was an average of 17 days per liberty ship to be built. In fact, they built a liberty ship in four and a half days. I want you to get this. In peacetime, when there was no urgency, it took them 257 days to build a liberty ship. But when they begin to recognize that this is crucial when they begin to recognize that this is essential, what happened is that a group of people said, we can't win this war if it's going to take us 257 days to build one. They're out there torpedoing them. They're not, all, not all of them are getting there. We've got to be able to figure out how to win the war. And so what began to happen is they began to, to, to understand how they begin to, to take the, the current ways that they were doing and they put those to the side. No longer are we going to use these methods. We're going to have new methods because new methods um, are, are required to be able to have the urgency that we need to have to win the war. And they went from 257 to being able to build one every 17 days and ultimately build one in four and a half days. And as I begin to recognize, that's just, that's right, this kind of ingenuity. When we put our minds together on this, when we begin to say this is so important that we've got to figure out how to get it done, it's amazing what we can accomplish. And you look at war stories about what kind of sacrifice and what kind of massive things were done when we begin to see this on the line. And what I want to say to us is, is this. At some level, we've got to understand that there is a promise. And that there is a problem. And that we're the kind of people. And maybe it's just going to take us having something that lights us from the very begin, from the very core of who we are. And we begin to say, hey, whatever it takes. That we're not going to wait. We're going to do whatever it takes. And we're going to be the kind of people that do whatever it takes. Because, because Jesus is precious, because hell is real, because a choice is demanded, and God has called you and I to be plan A. And so, I want you to know that God is walking ahead of you. And when you begin to walk into circumstances and situations, know that God has already said, you're plan A, I'm walking ahead of you. And as you begin to operate in obedience, you know that what Paul is saying is that God's already at work and what I'm praying for all of us is that we begin to have the stories that begin to say, it's just my obedience, but I got to see something amazing happen just because I showed up and said, yes. Let me pray for us. God, allow us to see your presence in our midst, Lord, in a powerful way. Lord, allow us to have stories that we can begin to tell that show not our skill, that do not show our capacity but show your faithfulness. God, help us to be the instruments that you use. Help us to be the people that you begin to call. Lord, I pray that that there'd be people that surround this community, people in uh, in the vicinity that begin to have their lives changed, Lord, simply because a group of people said yes to the next thing. So God, as we process this and as we begin to take and internalize all this, Give us faces right now. Give us faces for the people that we need to have a conversation with. Put those deep into our hearts, Lord. We likely already know what we need to do. Lord, help us just to say yes. Help us to say, I'll go. I'll be your instruments. I'll be your people. I'll be your hands. Lord, I'll be your feet. Take our feet. Make them beautiful in your holy name. Amen.